Hi, it's Guy here. Welcome to episode 29 of Creative Forces. Uh, now, just before I tell you about the guest this week, I always ask my guests what they're enjoying at the moment, uh, you know, whether it's books or TV series or whatever. So I thought I'd share with you a couple of the things that I've really enjoyed uh, listening to and watching or reading at the moment. I just finished watching episode two of season two of Fleabag. Now, I was a bit late to the party. This is a couple of years old, obviously, Fleabag, but I only just saw season one or series one uh, last week, and I think it's so good. It's absolutely brilliant. And I, season series two has carried on in the same vein. So if you haven't seen Fleabag, treat yourself to uh, series one and then the first two episodes of series two. It is so clever, so funny. Although it's, uh, you know, fingers... Look, watching through your fingers a lot of the time because it's so such dark humor but it's a brilliant watch watch that and then in terms of i've just finished reading the fifth risk by michael lewis now, i love michael lewis i've read a lot of his books absolutely amazing writer such a skill that he has of delving deep into a subject and finding out uh so much about it and being able to convey it in such a readable way well his latest one the fifth risk uh, is brilliant. It's all about the Trump presidency and the the risk that it poses in terms of America's future. But it's done in a very from a very specific viewpoint, which is probably a bit surprising. So uh, yeah, check that out if you can. Anyway, uh, this episode I speak to Martin Newman. Now Martin uh, is an internationally renowned expert on customer experience and e-commerce. He's been involved in retail for over 30 years. He grew up in Glasgow and he started out working for the family optician. Uh, but he went on after working for a bit as a holiday rep and a couple of other different things early on in his career. He went on to hold senior positions at Ted Baker, Harrods, Burberry uh, and Pentland Brands, Intersport. They own some massive brands that you will have heard of. Um but then, and then he went on to found his own uh, consultancy, Practicology. Now he's the, written a book, 100 Practical Ways to Improve Customer Experience, which has been shortlisted for all sorts of business book awards. He's a regular contributor to uh, Retail Week and Draper's, the big industry magazines, also delivers presentations all around the world. Really interesting guy. Uh, and in this interview, he describes that early career um, as a holiday rep. Um, how he worked his way up into those really senior positions in retail and then how he started his own consultancy and, you know, grew that internationally. And also which bands he sneaked uh, down to London to see uh, when he was a teenager. First things first, you're having some sinus problems. What's going on? <laughs> Man flu. I mean, it's a terrible illness, Guy, as you know. Yeah. Not something that the ladies listening today will be that familiar with. So, very serious illness. And the fact I've actually managed to drag myself out of my bed to be here, I think, is a testament yes. to the resolve that I have. A testament to the resolve that you've shown throughout your, your career, no doubt. I've, I've shown a bit of that, yes. <laughs> it's, not all been, uh, it's not all been a bed of roses. I've had no. quite a lot of challenges along the way. Um, I've had a business failure. I was in the dot-com when the dot-com was taking off and it crashed. So what, in, was, what was that business? Uh, it was a web development business. Web development, digital marketing, yep. domain registration. I was actually, I'll tell you the story very briefly if you don't mind. Sure. I, was, I used to be a marketing director in the sports trade. 
So is this um, in the sort of 90s, like mid, mid yeah. to late 90s? Yeah. So I, I used to work, <coughs> excuse me, I used to work for a company called Intersport who are buying and marketing group within the sports sector. Um, they're probably better known in Europe these days than they are here. But I then went to work for a company called Sports Connection, who at that time were a sort of top five sports retailer. Um, and I was sitting at my desk in the Hillington Industrial Estate in Glasgow. Hmm. And I, I'd never used a computer in my life, never literally switched one on. Hmm. I had one on my desk, but I'd never used it. And I used to give my handwritten notes to my PA. <laughs> and one day I was, I stuck my head out the door and I was asking for a document that she was working on and she was on the web. And I said, I've heard about this web thing, hmm. you know, show me. <laughs> and while you're at it, can you show me how to send an email, use this big box on my desk called a computer? And yep. I wouldn't call it a light bulb moment, but it was certainly, a, I suppose, a realisation that I was a bit of a laggard yep. uh, from a technology point of view, which I thought, well, that's probably going to have an effect on my career prospects. And my gut just told me that the web was the way things were going and I wanted to be a part of it. Um, so what was it she was looking at that made you think that? No, she was just online. She was just, I mean, she was just browsing, basically. Right. I can't even remember what the site was to tell you the honest truth. It was truth. more just the process of... She was at, the yeah. fact she was actually on, yeah. a, she was on the web. Um, <clears throat> I mean, it wouldn't even have been Google because it was 1997, <laughs> so there you go. Yeah. It was very early. And I decided at that point that I was going to throw myself into it and within six months to eight months of that I commissioned an agency to build a website for Sports Connection the company that I work for mm. and then not long after that I decided to go out on my own and I thought well if you know I, if we need a website everyone's going to need a website so I set up a business and we did quite well for about a year and a half I grew it to about 10 people um, made a bit of money made quite good money actually so you're and building websites for other people building point. websites for other people including e-commerce websites yeah. so really very early I built um, Celtic Football Club which is my team of choice oh, yeah. built their second I think it was their, either their first or their second transactional site um, about a year or so after that right. but anyway bottom line is people stopped invest businesses stopped investing in the web around about 99 hmm. um, because obviously there had been all this massive initial spike in interest and demand people investing in websites it was still dial-up modem there was hardly yeah. any broadband and the experience was terrible and as a result nobody was buying anything online so yeah. not long after that really the bubble really burst so i'd say the bubble started bursting in 99 and probably went right through to about 2002 yeah i fell out of the whole thing in 2001 um so essentially made quite a bit of money on the way up lost it all on the way back down okay uh, lost my confidence as well and thought, okay, tried right. to be an entrepreneur, clearly not fit for purpose <laughs> for that. So, you know, go back to a career. Um, so, yeah, so it was a bit of a, it is a bit of a blow. I mean, it's a, um, in fact, what I should tell you is that um, I maybe got a bit ahead of myself. I had a very nice Mercedes CLK, flashy CLK, with the registration plate w, sorry, W66 for web, right. WWW for worldwide web. Right. Uh, and living in, living in Glasgow, which um, can be a bit of a goldfish bowl at times, yeah. you know, people were coming up to me saying, whoa, you know, I hear you've sold your business for millions or you've an investment of millions. And I really hadn't. I did get some investment, but uh, it did all go into the business. Um, but it was a lesson learned, you know, and, and ultimately, if you fast forward mm. from sort of 2000, 2001 to essentially 2018, uh, and I'm sure we'll fill in some of the gaps in between. Yeah. I was 
fortunate enough to sell a consulting business that I built called Practicology. Yeah. Um, uh, exited that business on the 14th of December. And, you know, I built that to 100 people with offices in London, Dubai, Guangzhou in China, Sydney, mm. Melbourne in Australia, Hong Kong. And I was only really able to do that <clears throat> because of the experience that I'd been through. Because if I hadn't had the business failure, there's no yeah. way Practicology would have survived the nine years that we that I built the business over because I wouldn't have seen the writing on the wall, you know. So, for yeah. example, when the Brexit vote took place, my instinct back in 2016, my instinct was that's going to be quite harmful for Practicology because at that moment in time, almost all of our clients were in retail. And I knew that it would have an impact on currency, on sterling. That meant the cost of goods would go up yep. very quickly. And my instinct was, with all these things that retailers were going to be facing into, um, that that would also affect consumer confidence and that retailers would stop investing in our services. And that actually is what happened for about four or five months. Mm. So had I not sort of, I guess, just through my experience, sort of seen that potential, yeah. then I wouldn't have taken the right steps in terms of our resources, our headcount, yeah. our cost structure, you know, and so on and so forth. I also, at that point in time, made a very conscious decision to take the business, not to remain in retail, but to also go into other verticals. So we started going into FMCG, CPG. What are those, by the way, sorry? Fast-moving consumer goods okay. and consumer packaged goods. Okay. Same, kind of similar thing, but yeah. some people know them by different, by different terms. Yeah. You know, these are the brand, very often the brands that you see in your supermarket. You okay, know, so yeah. that so can be big brands like Marmite or Tetley Tea, correct. all that kind of stuff. Could be yeah. more Chondon, could be Perno, could be drinks brands, could be food brands, yeah, and so on and so forth. And and that definitely proved to be a good move because a lot of those other ver consumer-facing verticals are very interested in our or we're very interested in our retail heritage and our retail mm. expertise because everyone in practicology came from the client side. I see. So we will fill in those gaps. Yes. But I'm really interested in that, that sort of transition between, you know, having the business but then having to leave that business behind. And you say you learned a lot from that experience, which then informed yes. much of what you did later. So what, looking back now, what do you think were the key things that you learned that you've taken on sure. through the, the, for the next so 20, almost 20 years? Yeah. Well, the, the, first, the first thing is when I, when I started my business, the, the first business venture, I didn't have any partners and, you know, I really missed that because I, you know, I didn't have the experience of running a business prior to that. I mean, I'd had, you know, I'd been on the board in different businesses and the client side and retail, yep. but I hadn't actually run a business and, and I missed having people who, to bounce things off, you know, at my level, people mm. that could really contribute to the strategic direction of the business. So, for example, when we were building websites and e-commerce websites, rather than um, do, going down the path of what you would call software as a service, so build the site, charge the client money for it, but then charge them some ongoing fees, yeah. we were basically charging them a one-off fee and that was it. Sure. So we had no recurring revenue streams, so when the dot-com burst and bubble burst, uh, that was it. I mean, we, we, you know, we had some cash in the bank, but that ran out because yep. we had no recurring revenue. <clears throat> but I, I tie that back to the fact that I just didn't have enough experience at that time. And, you know, it's not guaranteed that having other people with me at that time would have necessarily meant that we would have changed the model. Um, but, you know, I, I, I'm very self-aware and I know that I know what my strengths are and I know what my weaknesses are, but I didn't do enough 
with that at that moment. Whereas when I launched Practicology, I immediately thought, well, I can't do all this on my own. So I came up with the concept mm. for the business, the brand name and everything else and what I wanted it to do. And I wanted it to be a business that was made up of people from the client side, yeah, retailers, people with core retail experience. So people with that industry experience who could then advise exactly, yeah, exactly. the industry. Whereas yeah. most consultancies tend to go down the path of hiring the biggest brains from the best universities. Yeah. And whilst I'm all for a good education, I just felt there was a gap, yeah. um, which I think I was proven right. But, you know, I think the most important thing I did is I brought a couple of partners on board very early and that gave that meant that they... I brought people in <clears throat> that plugged my gap, that, that essentially had skills in areas that I maybe didn't. Mm. And it, made, it gave me the confidence that, you know, we could actually create a sustainable and successful business. You mentioned there that you recognise your own strengths and weaknesses. So where, where did you see the weaknesses, if you like? Or both? Sure. <clears throat> Excuse me. Well, I, I, I am very, I mean, my, my, I think my core competencies, as I'm sure we'll talk about, is all around the customer customer centricity, customer behavior. So I didn't feel, I don't want to sound arrogant, but I didn't feel that I needed anything there. But what mm. I felt I needed, for example, was somebody that really understood technology. So, I mean, I'd been ahead of e-commerce and run multi-channel operations for some amazing businesses like Harrods, Burberry, Pentland Brands, Ted Baker. Um, <clears throat> but my skills were in customer service and marketing and content and customer engagement, mm. customer acquisition. Not so much on the technology front. <coughs> it's okay. And I thought that if I'm going to build a, a consulting business in this space, to be successful, I have to have someone in the business that really understands technology You know, at a level where it gives us real credibility when we're engaging yeah. with clients. Because I knew that you know, we would be in a position where we could help them find the right technological solutions for what they were trying to deliver. I could answer the piece around the customer experience, but I needed somebody to help define what sort of solutions did the, did the client need. And so I brought on board a guy called Mark Lewis who had worked with me at Burberry, had been a consultant there. We had a good relationship. I knew what his skills and his strengths were. Um, and he, he was first in the door with me. And then not long after that, brought on a guy called Jeremy Wilson who had preceded me, not preceded me, came in after me <laughs> uh, at Pentland Brands a couple of years later, but mm. was a very experienced e-commerce director. And he probably had, he, arguably he had a hybrid a crossover of some of my skills and some of Mark's skills, but also very commercial, mm. a trained accountant. So I thought it's good to have someone in the business that has, yeah. you know, the, the more detailed financial expertise. Um, so yeah, so I think all of that really helped us you know, build the business successfully for the first couple of years. And, and the other thing that I learned from, going back to your question about, you know, lessons learned from the business failure back in sort of 1999-2000 was that we didn't bring anybody else on board uh, up until about the middle of 2012. So we put money in the bank, we paid ourselves a <clears throat> very modest salary, and we waited until we were in a position where I felt we could start to bring in, you know, more resources. And so... Sure we had the cash in the bank to do that because we never actually, we never took investment from any, mm. from any third parties. We grew the business organically. And when, just finally on the, the transition, if you like, from having your own business, what was that experience like? How did it feel when you'd had, you seemingly, you thought you'd, you'd got it all and then it, it kind of slipped through your fingers? Uh, <clears throat> sorry, it's pretty, it's pretty horrible. Um, you know, losing, losing a business is not a nice experience for, anyone, for anybody to go through. But like I said, you know, I think life is full of ups and downs, and I think really it's what you do 
with the downs, you yeah. know, and how much you learn from those experiences. And I think that, you know, the old the old adage of, you know, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Mm. I think I'm I fall into that category. I think I've used the adversity that I've been through in my career to my bit to my benefit. I've learned from it. Mm. Um, and I haven't I've tried very hard not to make the same mistakes again. <laughs> um, but it was it was a blow, you know, I mean I, <clears throat> I'm actually quite a humble person. I'm not genuinely a, a sort of you know, ego-driven human being. But when you lose a business, and particularly when people know, a lot, of, a lot of people knew about me, I had some visibility within the Glasgow scene where I was, yeah. where I lived. Um, I found that a bit tough. Yeah. Um, you know, just in the sense that it's not nice people knowing your, you know, your, your sort of something negative like that, I guess. It's not an easy thing to deal with if you haven't been through it before. But mm. I, I got over that um, and I threw myself back into my career. And as I say, you know, lo and behold, sort of yeah. nearly 20 years later, you know, I turned, I, I, I created something very successful. And what was the first job you got after that? <clears throat> For a period of time, I actually... Um, I did consulting work, uh, so I was mainly focusing on e-commerce and marketing. Um, it took me a while, so I tried to get back into a career for the best part of a couple of years. There wasn't, to be honest with you, there wasn't really anything in Glasgow for me. There was very right. little by way. I was trying to get back into retail. <clears throat> there were very few retail head offices left in Glasgow at that time. So I started looking in London, and I got on quite a few shortlists, but every time I got on a shortlist... I'm up against people who sometimes had better CVs. And even when they didn't, they were living here. And I had the baggage of a wife and kids yeah. and having going to have to relocate ultimately from Glasgow. Sure. Yeah. So sometimes, obviously, you know, that might mean that the, the client or the, the business decided to go with the safer option. You know, yeah. somebody who was already living and based in London. And then eventually, I remember seeing a job for Harrods oh, yeah. uh, on a job board. And I was about to go on holiday, actually, and I'd literally emailed them, I think, the morning I was going on holiday. <laughs> Didn't expect anything. Came back, found an email in my inbox saying, we'd really like to have a conversation with you. So Fantastic. Came down for the interview. Um, and it's like lots of things. Serendipity, you know, my boss, he was French. <laughs> he was currently still commuting from Paris and in the process of relocating his family and so right. you know the whole thing of having to move my family from Glasgow was more of a talking point rather than an issue yeah and so he had empathy with you in your situation <clears throat> total you empathy think, yeah. absolutely and more importantly that time because I'm going back to 2004 um, Harrods online business was really quite small mm. in, in revenue terms and so I was head of home shopping which was harrods.com and also the catalogs so Harrods has a lot of catalog business they sell hampers, teddy bears and all the rest of it mainly, yep. mainly Harrods branded merchandise at least back in that day back in those days rather and at that time I had the right skill set because I had a very strong catalogue background, direct mail background, as well as e-commerce. Mm. So I had the perfect skill set, and, right. and that's what convinced them to give me the opportunity. So you'd mentioned... <coughs> <laughs> so you mentioned that um, before you moved to Harrods then, you were based in Glasgow. So is that where you're from originally? Um, <clears throat> I'm actually, funnily enough, uh, despite my Glaswegian tone, I was born in London, right? Uh, but adopted and brought up in brought up in Glasgow. Okay. So yeah. So from an early age, you lived in Glasgow. Lived in Glasgow from I think about eight months of eight eight, eight months old. Yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah. And what was life like in Glasgow then? In the those oh, early days. <clears throat> the school of hard knocks, Glasgow. <laughs> it's not. I I personally, I mean, I, I'm sure lots of people would feel differently, but I found it 
funnily enough, I find it quite a stressful place to grow up. Um, I mean, it can be quite a tough place. And I think if you, you know, I suppose if you stand out a bit, yeah. then, you know, trouble doesn't, you don't necessarily need to go looking for trouble that can find you. And did you stand <coughs> out at that I point? St- I probably think? did as a youngster. Um, In what way? Uh, probably, I don't know, probably in terms of the way, you know, my, my interest in fashion and music, uh, <clears throat> maybe just being a little bit different. I'm an ethnic, I'm an ethnic minority, I'm Jewish. Mm. You know, there's lots of different things and, I, and I, it's probably not any different to being anywhere else for that matter. But I, I found I found it maybe not as accepting of that those points of difference as, as I would have preferred. And maybe in a bigger city like London, it might have been slightly different. But... Mm. So yeah, I had to I had to look after myself when I was growing up and through my through my days at school. Yeah, what was what was school like? I was going to ask you. Is, were you academically minded or not at all? No, not at all. Not 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 the favorite not the favorite time of my life would be uh, would probably be an understatement. Um, I, but also a source of regret, which I <clears throat> managed to redress and address later on when I wrote my book, which we'll come on and talk about. Mm. Um, but yeah, I. I didn't I wasn't really focused on what was happening at school and my academic career as such. Um, probably because I was always entrepreneurial at heart. Right. I didn't really know that back then, but I was very easily distracted. <laughs> and the idea of you know doing exams uh, when I was 16 years of age wasn't top of my agenda. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> but I also found you know I did have to look after myself physically as I was going through school and that was partly mainly being part of an partly being part of an ethnic minority yeah um, I did end up strapping quite a bit right in secondary school you know which is not something I enjoyed at all and not something I look back with uh, on fondness but or with fondness rather but I think that's again part of part of kind of growing up in a place like Glasgow and was that um, something you got in trouble for or was it more thankfully not too much a little bit at school yeah. Um, yeah there was the odd occasion where you know, the headmaster had to have a word. Um, but very often he knew what the backstory was and he was sort of supportive but couldn't be seen to be supportive, yeah. if you like, of me defending yeah. myself. So yeah. he suggested that uh, I take care of things out of school because if I did it in school, right. he would ha- he would have <laughs> to take some disciplinary action. Right. Uh, so, and yeah. did you follow that advice? Uh, on occasion, but <laughs> you're, it's not something that you can, you know, it's not something that you can always do, right? If somebody no. starts... If somebody tries to start a fight with you, you know, you've got two choices. You either do nothing about it or you do something about it. Yeah. Um, and I was more in the latter, so where I chose to do something about it. Right. So there you go. And what happened then at 16? Did you... You left school then, right? I did. <clears throat> I left school at 16 and I went to work for my father. Um, right. So had, what, was your, what was your dad's business? He had a small chain of um, opticians in Glasgow. Right. Um, he wanted me to go to university. He wanted me to study optics. And if I'd known then what I know now, I would have helped him build Specsavers. Right. But there you go. <laughs> I didn't have, unfortunately, that vision nor the, nor the skill set um, back in those days. Mm. Um, but I, I, it was quite an interesting time because I was working in my dad's business. He's not sadly no longer with us, but I was working in his business when optics was being deregulated. So probably many people listening to this podcast won't know that there was a time in the UK when opticians weren't allowed to advertise. Yeah. It was a very heavily regulated, government regulated industry. Sure. Very sterile, you know, no, no, no marketing. It was, excuse me, very professional. It was mainly independence. There were no national chains. 
And then the government opened, started opening, up, opening that up in the sort of early to mid 80s. So I got involved in my dad's business at a time when it was quite interesting. And I, I was able to cut my teeth in a marketing role, albeit I didn't exactly have a lot of experience. <laughs> but if you want an opportunity to, to learn, then, you know, working in, your, in the family business is a pretty good way of doing it. So did he sort of make you work your way up? Or how did, how did it work when you first started working there? Yeah, pretty much. I was uh, on the ground floor, on the shop floor, and I had people that I had to report into, and it yeah. wasn't him. Um, <laughs> although he, he was giving me a steer of an evening, you know, and what I could maybe <laughs> do to improve. But, you know, I did enjoy it, and I did that for a few years, and it was good fun. But And again, you know, I suppose in hindsight, if I had gone... But the thing is, if I had gone to university, it would have taken me a few years, yeah. obviously, to get the qualification. And as I say, I just, I just didn't have that mindset at the time. It's not something I wanted to pursue, you know. Well, you, you mentioned that you were you didn't really know it, but you were entrepreneurial at school. Were you doing other stuff while you were at school? Were you trying things <clears throat> when you look back now that you think, oh yeah, that was a no, sort of indication? No, I don't. I don't think I was. I think that I've. I think that I've always had a lot of energy. Hmm. I've always had lots of energy, lots of passion, lots of drive. Um, I didn't. Unfortunately, or I had it, I think I had it when I was at school, but school was not, and academia was not the vehicle for me to funnel that into. Right. So rather than being, you know, incredibly, you know, ideas driven at that age, it was more just having the energy, but nowhere to actually, yeah. you know, put that energy into. Uh, and so I suppose I didn't have the ideas. I mean, I'm not one of those entrepreneurs who, you know, started selling sweets or started selling no. shirts or some other form of entrepreneurial venture, you know, <laughs> while they were at school. Um, but as I say, looking back, I mean, I recognize that ultimately that's, I think that's what I am. And I think I've yeah. demonstrated that, you know, over the course of my career. And I've still managed to spend a fair amount of time on, you know, in a corporate career and, and progress within that as well. But I think ultimately I was destined to work for myself. And was it a difficult decision then when you did leave the the family business if you like was that a difficult decision at the time or how did that work yeah it was a little <clears throat> um my dad wasn't massively happy with it but you know then but but to say saying that i mean he he was my mum and dad were very different my mum was very much of the uh, glass half empty <clears throat> right. my dad was always glass half full did she work in the business too or? no no no, no. my mum looked after looked after all of us Looked after the house, very traditional. Um, my Was parents, there a few of you? No, 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 I was the only child. I see, right. Um, <clears throat> but my mum, you know, if I left a job, whenever I left a job, my mum always wanted to know why I was leaving the job, <laughs> you know, and there was never a good reason for doing it, no matter where I was going or what I was going to do, whereas mm. my dad always encouraged me to, you know, kind of follow my passion. So even although he wasn't 100% happy when I decided to leave his business, yeah. you know, he, he knew that I needed to spread my wings and, you know... Was he, did he have an eye on you taking it over eventually or...? Absolutely, and I think that's why he wanted me to go to university. Um, and maybe, again, if I had hung around a bit longer as I matured hmm. and became a bit clearer, I guess, in terms of what I wanted to do, to do with my life or became a bit more commercial, a bit more savvy, um, then that's maybe a path I could have gone down, but hmm. uh, it just wasn't the right time. But th you were involved then in retail, I guess, though, in the even though it wasn't the same in terms of, as you say, it was very much more heavily regulated, but I, it was... I cut my teeth on the shop floor. I mean, yeah. I, 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 you know, I spent time serving customers that would come in and, you know, come in for their... their um, you know their appointment to have their eyes tested and I would occasionally help them 
select some you know some glasses after the test so i did get involved in, in most parts of the business mm. i even got involved in the the glazing side i mean my dad was quite entrepreneurial and he not only had a small chain of opticians but he brought the the manufacturing side of things the glazing into his business he was probably one of the first right. to do that particularly in the independent sector because he recognized the first of all he could then you know he could glaze people's glasses much quicker they could, you know, he could he could improve the supply chain if you like, yeah, and the yeah. ability for customers to get their glasses quicker. Um, he made more margin rather than having to outsource it and send it off yeah. to a factory somewhere if you like, or you know, for somebody else to do to do all of that. So, you know, he was entrepreneurial. So I touched, you know, I did have a bit of experience of most parts of the business. Mm. And do you think then, you know, because obviously your expertise now is retail, and do you think that that those early years there really? pushed you down that road because you already had that experience within retail or was it was it something different that pushed you down towards that being so heavily in, into retail no i think it, i think it definitely played a part i mean it gave me my first exposure to being in an environment where i would engage with consumers mm. um and i enjoyed that i've always been a people person you know yeah. despite despite what i said about my school days <laughs> uh, i didn't start most of that you know most of that came to me unfortunately but yeah. no i've always been a people person and um you know i did enjoy the the interaction with customers that were yeah. patients as they were really yeah, well, formally sure. known as when they yeah. were coming in to the practice and, and i'm pretty sure that did sow the early seeds of you know what i was going to go on to end up doing yeah you mentioned that just to rewind slightly you mentioned that at school you know you you were into fashion and music so what were the the passions at that time well i have to i have to hold my hands up now and hope that none of my ex-teachers are listening <laughs> i'm not sure if any of them are still alive but i uh, i used to bunk off school occasionally and come right. down to london on a tuesday for uh, Steve Strange's New Romantic Night at the Camden Palais. So, wow. yeah, those are the days. Uh, so I was very, I, I actually went through different sort of um, genres, I guess. I mean, I was really into rock. That was my, yeah. that was my first thing. I Who mean, were I, the big, big... Well, I, I saw quite a lot of bands live. I mean, I had the great fortune of seeing the great Freddie Mercury live right. at the Apollo in Glasgow in 1979. Wow. And I don't know if you've seen Bohemian Rhapsody, the film. I haven't yet, but I want to. But you'll see it in there, it, it, one particular... Um, uh, one particular element of the film, he's they're playing live, and he's got red leather trousers on, and you know, and a tie, a leather tie, and that's what he wore when he played in Glasgow right. in 1979. So that would have been from that era. So I saw Queen live, I saw Black Sabbath, I saw Iron Maiden, Judas Priest, Rush. Thin Lizzy, uh, I saw Status Quo probably about half a dozen times. Right. Were these mainly in Glasgow? Or was this on the... the no, the, these were in Glasgow. Yeah. Um, and then, and it's a bit weird, so I went from my kind of my combat jacket with all the patches <laughs> of all the bands. I went from that into being a, a full-on Euromantic with a right. sort of flock of seagulls haircut or a Spandau Valley haircut, you know, <laughs> shaved up one side and yeah. long and pulled down the other. I had tucker boots, baggy bay trousers, white frilly shirts... Occasionally wore eyeliner, you know, I was yeah. really into it in a big way. And was there a group of you that did it or was it, was it just you? That there was a few it? of us, yeah. yeah. There, was, there was a group of sort of four or five of us that were really into it. Um, yeah. And there was one particular friend of mine who lives in Australia now. Who, it was he and I, he was a bit older. He, he was probably a bad influence. He used to be, <laughs> we used to come down to, you know, to London a few times on a Tuesday. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And would you be back in school on the Wednesday? How did that uh, work? Maybe the Thursday. That was <laughs> <laughs> pretty good. Yeah. Where would you stay? With his uncle, actually, his uncle had a flat in Elephant and Castle, and so we used to come down and stay there. And I, I also vividly, <laughs> vividly remember going down South Moulton Street and 
buying some fashion and Browns who are still there. You yeah. know, were there back back in. I think I'm pretty sure it was Browns back in those days. So I was big into my fashion, big into that whole new romantic scene. Um, right. The bands that you would go and see then be Spandau Ballet, Depeche Mode. ABC, Human yeah. League, and so on and so forth. It was great. I mean, I loved Amazing. that time. It was fantastic. Probably the best time of my life in in just growing up and the whole kind of entertainment and going clubbing and yeah. and everything else, you know. Was there ever an attempt to be in a band yourself or was it more the... I did actually. I, as it happens, I did. I played keyboards probably quite badly and I did <laughs> and I did sing in a band at that time. Right. Um and we, we we once nearly supported one of the we we once genuinely nearly had the opportunity to support flock of seagulls, but something something happened with someone, and you know we ended up missing our opportunity. But the big moment, yeah, exactly. But I don't think I don't think I was destined uh, to be successful in that <laughs> in that sphere. To be honest with you, Fair more enough. in my mind than anything else. <laughs> yeah, I think we're all in that boat, yeah. aren't we? Um, so then, okay, so you it was a difficult decision, you say, <clears throat> but what what drove you then the decision to? To, to leave the, the family business. Was that really, as you said, spreading your wings a bit? Yeah, or? I just wanted to learn other stuff. You know, yeah. I wanted to, <clears throat> excuse me, I wanted to go out and do new things. Um, and it'll, it'll, you'll find it quite entertaining when I tell you what I ended up doing next. Go on. So I saw an advert for a travel company and it was actually Club 1830. And I don't know what it was, but I was in, I was in a relationship at the time that wasn't really lighting my fire okay so there was probably a bit of kind of escapism and wanting to try something new and and i saw this ad for overseas reps didn't really know anything about club 1830 or anything you know went along for that yeah and lo and behold you know ended up landing a <clears throat> landing a job as a rep going abroad um and i and i've always been career minded and i've always been ambitious so if you take all of the innuendos <laughs> away from the away from what people are thinking right now just for a minute yeah <laughs> And it, yeah, I did have a, a fun time working abroad, but uh, <laughs> suffice to say, I became I am career minded, and so after my first summer, you know, I said to my boss, I didn't get winter work, I didn't I didn't get ski job, and there, there weren't many ski jobs available, so you had to really be at the top of your game. Yeah, and I said, well, what do I need to do next summer in order to you know get that opportunity? And he said, well, you know, maybe why why not go and learn the learn the learn a language? Yeah, and I did that, and I, I was probably the only person that did, and I took it really seriously. So where was this then that you were going at the time? Well, I worked in Mallorca for a yeah. few summers, and then and then after my first summer, I did get I did land. So after my second summer, I landed a ski job in the winter. So I went to right. Kitzbühel in Austria. Okay, and I really loved that. Because it was very different, you know, Ski Club 1830, despite the fact it was still Club 1830. Yeah. It was a ski season. It was a different demographic. Yeah. And I'm not being a snob at all whatsoever, but I just really enjoyed it. I really liked the atmosphere. You know, there wasn't any fighting. People people just generally got on. Yeah. The whole Apri ski thing. It was just a really great vibe. Whereas in the summer, yeah. you know, you could be, you could find yourself coming back from the barbecue <laughs> and having to basically try and stop a fight between eight Leeds United fans and eight Millwall fans. Yeah. You don't and, need that, do you? In, no. In and think to yourself, what am I doing? You know, <laughs> why am I doing this? So, so which language did you learn then? Uh, well, I learned a little bit of Spanish and yeah. I learned a little bit of German and okay. that, that gave me, and just the fact I'd made the effort, you know, I think that that really caught the attention of some of the hierarchy within the business. Okay. So I, I ended up getting promoted quite rapidly and but basically by the end of, oh, crikey, turning the clock by now, by 1990, I, I entered, or 1990, I was a resort manager right. and I was a resort manager looking after Tenerife, right. and uh, I woke up one morning in the winter and uh, the whole, the, the 
the entity that owned Club 1830, which was the International Leisure Group, or ILG as it was known then, went bankrupt. Right. Uh, and at that point, I kind of momentarily lost my job. And a few of the, the hierarchy decided that it was Club 1830 was worth saving. They sort of refounded the business, but because of the rules of bankruptcy, they weren't allowed to use the same name. Mm. So they changed the name to the club. They actually offered me a promotion. Right. But I just thought, you know, I don't fancy having to go back to Tenerife and have conversations with all these hoteliers and nightclubs and all the other suppliers and, t- yeah. and explain to them that, you wouldn't get you wouldn't, you wouldn't get any money from the old business. You might get a penny and a pound, but can you deal with this new company called the club? I just thought that sounds like really hard yeah. work. So and they were getting a they weren't getting a great deal out of the <clears throat> no. And I just just by that by that point in time, I'd really seen there been it done it and yeah. kind of gone as far as I probably ever expected to go. Yeah. And again, just thought it was time to sort of move on. You know? But great experience, I guess, and an oh, experience of, of being promoted and I was running, taking on more responsibility. Yeah, I, I mean, I was running, you know, multi-million pound budgets, yeah. basically, as a, as, a, as a man in his early, tw- as a guy in his early 20s. I mean, the experience was phenomenal and, mm. and just all the crazy things like having to deal with somebody jumping off a balcony, you know, and mm. nearly killing themselves, you know, who, what sort of experience can you possibly go through that sets you up for that? Yeah, you almost have to go through it before you know what to do. Yeah, and and it's a great test of your character, you know, in terms of how you react to these things. So, yeah. I mean, it, a true education. I mean, I, I have to be honest and say <laughs> it probably beat a university <laughs> route. Heads, yeah. you know, hands down at that moment in time for me because it was yeah. University of Life. Yeah, um, there probably I, some similarities to going to university. I would have thought there certainly well. were certainly <laughs> certainly as far as the uh, more entertaining side of that yeah. is yeah. concerned. For Amazing. sure. So, yeah. so when you decided then to, yeah, it was probably a new challenge was needed. Yeah. Did you do a complete switch again, or was it? Did you? Yeah. Well, you I, I came. Next? I came back to the. I came back to Glasgow, and I, I was again. I suppose I was a bit naive because because I'd had so much responsibility. You know, I'd had a team of thirty reps, multi-million pound budget, yeah. negotiating contracts with hotel chains, with nightclubs, and everything. You know, I just thought I was going to walk into a senior management role somewhere, <laughs> and boy, did I! Boy, was that a wake-up call for me. So I was doing the rounds of the headhunters in Glasgow, and and you know they were saying to me, so, "What were you doing? <laughs> were you selling timeshare?" They just couldn't get their head around what I'd actually right. done, and I probably wasn't, you know, capable of maybe doing it justice or you know articulating selling it as well. Yeah, well selling it, yeah. the experience as well as well as I might have, and I just found it really hard. And I remember <clears throat> um, a couple of headhunters sort of saying to me, "You know, uh, you know, you just haven't got enough blue chip." experienced son you know and so yeah. that that really rankled me but it <laughs> but it stuck in my head and yeah. i thought well that's what they were looking for i'll show you pal i'm yeah. gonna one day i'm gonna get all that blue chip experience and so yeah. i never forgot that and um certainly when i was latterly when you know before i started practicology when i was going through the kind of harrods yeah pentland brands who own speedo kickers berkhouse etc burberry ted baker yeah i remembered those days <laughs> quite fondly so how thought. did you get from that point then to working for those huge <clears throat> brands i actually i spent some time working in media so oh yeah i moved into advertising sales and i i started actually started doing tele sales right in the glaswegian newspaper in glasgow and then migrated uh, got promoted if you like or not promoted but you know the opportunity to work for the herald and evening times the herald is scotland's main broadsheet leaving yep. times as glasgow's only evening paper um i was looking after the entertainment category at that time so and i did pretty well um and then what happened is i 
again, always being ambitious and always kind of looking at the next move, if you like, decided that I wanted to take my advertising experience <clears throat> and some of my other commercial experience from working abroad. Um, and I want to, I fancy going into the, actually going into the agency sector. So I moved from the media titles themselves mm. to work for some small Glasgow advertising agencies. Right. And when I was in those advertising agencies, I managed to pick up um, the account for Sports Connection. And that was the business that I ended right. up working for, although, in, uh, although I left... I left one of the ad agencies and I went to work for Intersport yeah. as head of marketing and then I went to Sports Connection. So that got me back into the client side, got me back into retail. Yeah. So my whole career basically, I mean, you could split my CV down the middle pretty much between being on the client side and being a service provider. Yeah. And as you can tell, not all of it has been in retail, but most of it has been in our servicing the retail space Yeah. for 37 years or a few of those were spent abroad in the holiday sector. Yeah. Um, so yeah, you mentioned some of those big brands that you've worked for. So Burberry, Ted Baker, yeah. and Harrods, and Pentland, which has um, a Speedo and Berghaus, isn't it? So yeah. you know, there's some major, major brands. So what was that experience like of working, you know, with such established brands and trying to sort of find the marketing, the new marketing routes, if you like, for those yeah. products? <clears throat> I loved it. I mean, I really loved it. The biggest challenge that I faced at Harrods was when I was there as head of home shopping, um, at that time, you know, the, if you, the, from, from the website perspective, from an e-commerce perspective, the only things I had to sell were largely Harrods branded merchandise. Yeah. I had teddy bears, hampers, mugs, and <laughs> anything else with the Harrods logo on it. So I, I said to Mohammed Al-Fayed and the buying community, you know, I need brands, I need branded merchandise. Yeah. Because that's what people want to buy. You know, obviously a large chunk of, of Harrods customer base are tourists. But once they've gone, whether they're domestic tourists or international tourists, once they've gone home, mm. they don't want to buy any more Harrods merchandise. They bought that when they went to the store. Yeah. So if you want to engage with them, you have to give them a different proposition. Um, so I, I spent most of the year that I was there actually trying to convince the buying community, as I say, to give me opportunities to sell, you know, other products. Hmm. Um, but I loved it. I mean, it was a great experience. Were you based in the, the Harrods building? Oh, I was, I was on the roof. <laughs> I mean, our, yeah, the e-commerce office was actually literally on the roof. Right. I mean, not outside, obviously, <laughs> but on the roof. That would have been pushing yeah. it a bit, wouldn't it? So back, back in the days, sadly, when I used to smoke, uh, which I managed to give up uh, a few years after, but uh, yeah, I used to go outside for a puff on the roof of Harrods. Yeah. So there you go. I actually used to work not far from there. I used to work at number one night bridge for a little right, while yeah. so I used to walk down towards yeah. that end and uh, yeah. occasionally go to Harrods I think if you're, just I think, for I think, a wander around I think if you're ambitious I mean it's, a, it's an amazing business I mean it's a truly one off yeah. there's no other I mean I love Selfridges as a, as a customer experience but I don't think I, well, I was going to say I don't think there's another business like it um, there's um, not Galleries Lafayette Lane Crawford yeah. in Hong Kong a little bit similar you know quirky yeah you know quite you you kind of as you wander through the store i mean they've got lots of stores but as you wander through the store you discover you know lots of really innovative uh, products but i don't think there's anything quite like harrods in terms of the layout the, the, the breadth of the range mm. you know it's an amazing experience i mean you could go in there and spend a whole day in there yeah, quite easily you know it's true so very privileged you know having having worked for them how was it working for mohammed al-fayed uh, interesting, interesting. <laughs> I, I mean, you know, he's a man who, he was on a mission and, you know, he was very ambitious with regards to his plans for the business. And, yeah. You know, to be fair, when by the time he had sold the business, 
and, and exited it himself. You know, he had grown the business exponentially, so yeah. he was successful. Um, I think when you work, I mean, again, being an entrepreneur, I can empathise with this a little bit. I think when you work for certain entrepreneurs, you know, the, the tolerance or the, the sort of patience yeah. is quite short, and so you've got to try and, you've really got to hit the ground running. Hmm. In fact, this is a true story, that my first day at work, I was taken into his inner sanctum on the fifth floor in Harrods to be introduced hmm. properly, and um, he was with Natalie Massonet, the founder of Net-A-Porter, right. Net-A-Porter. Uh, and, he, and they were looking at Net-A-Porter, a very early version of it, and he said, this is what we need. This is the site you need to you need to create for Harrods. Right. So, so I met her, that was back in uh, 2004. Nice bit of early an early pointer as to what he wanted. Very much so, very <laughs> much so. Uh, well, she certainly uh, she certainly knew what she was doing because yeah. she went on to build an amazing business. Absolutely. Um, but I, le- I left there now. I, I went to work for Pentland Brands. I, I have a relationship with the Rubin family who, who uh, owned the business and I sort of going back to my time in the sports trade mm. because they were, you know, their brands were being sold in the, in the businesses that I worked in. So I had a good relationship there and had a conversation and uh, e-commerce was something that they wanted to start to develop, but <clears throat> they hadn't really done anything at that point, partly because, you know, the brands, most of their business was through other people's channels, you know, they were wholesale, they were manufacturers, but they were wholesalers. Yeah. They were selling their brands to retailers. And as you can imagine, the, the people who ran the brands, the individual brands, were very concerned about the impact of e-commerce and if they were to do the, have their own direct-to-consumer proposition, what, what that might mean to the, to the relationships that they had with their retail customers. So, mm. it, so it wasn't easy. I was in there in an, in an interim capacity. Um, and I managed to get that off the ground, bring in the technology, put a roadmap in place. Um, but I decided that I just thought that would be quite a long time before they really get behind it. Not, yeah. not, not the centre of the business, not the family, but, you know, the individual brands. Yeah. Um, and so at that point, <clears throat> excuse me, I thought I'd be better going back into the client side and working for, I mean, that was client side, but going back into a brand that saw the, really saw the opportunity behind e-commerce. And I became Burberry's first head of e-commerce in Europe. Right. And so I basically launched, um, you know, Burberry.com or the European version of it, um, which has obviously gone on and proven to be pretty successful. It's been hugely successful, hasn't it? The, yeah, very well. I mean, the brand, uh, I, you know, I think, I mean, the brand had gone, the brand's gone through quite a lot of, you know, cyclical peaks and troughs over the years and yeah. not long out, not long before I joined, you know, they had really done a turnaround of the business which was led by Rosemary Bravo and then Angela Arantz took over who's just left or just announced that she's about to leave Apple. Um, but, you know, they both did an amazing job uh, in scaling that business. Christopher Bailey, who then, who's obviously the, yeah. the creative director, went on to become the CEO. Uh, and, I, you know, I think they, it's fair to say they had a little bit of a blip recently, but, yeah. you know, very strong, great brand. Um, and like all things fashion, you know, things go out of fashion at, yeah. from time to time. But phenomenal experience. And then left there and went to Ted Baker, um, which I loved. And, and I think, you know, from a, from, I suppose from a cultural point of view, you know, I really, I really enjoyed my time there. You know, it's very, it's a charismatic business. Yeah. Uh, great place to work. Lots of, lots of really interesting people, many of whom have been there for a long time uh, and really enjoyed it. But... I was getting to that point where having had consecutive uh, back-to-back roles heading up online and in some cases some other channels, mm. <clears throat> I wasn't a board level, I was a level below board. Right. Because it was back in the days when retailers didn't really know, and it's, to be honest, it's not changed that much, but it was back in the days when they didn't really know what to do with e-commerce. And so 
they found people like me who understood the space and then they made me report into a trusted board level sponsor. Sure. But I was P&L accountable, but not fully responsible. Right. And I just felt, well, that wasn't really what I wanted. I thought if you're going to make me accountable for the, for the numbers, you need to give me the, re- or sorry, it's maybe the other way around. If you're going to <laughs> make me accountable for the numbers, you <laughs> need to make me responsible for achieving them. Yeah. In other words, let me make the decisions about technology, about capabilities, about skills that I need in the team, about the resources, about marketing, you know, and so on and so forth. Did you try and make that case when you were there? At yeah, I did. And I, I did. And I, and I mean, I was, I think I probably was getting somewhere with that at Ted Baker, but maybe not as quickly as I would have liked. Yeah. And, and I think that that job probably came at the wrong end of those roles after I'd moved to London. I think if that had been the first one or yeah. the second one, I would have probably seen it through yeah. and stayed a bit longer and been a bit more resilient. But mm-hmm. because it was at the end of a sort of five-year spell of going through similar scenarios, yeah. I just thought, you know what, I think it's time to maybe look at the uh, other side of the fence. So is that the tipping point then? You really wanted that higher level of responsibility almost? Very much so. And I, I was very, I mean, I abs- bearing in mind that when I was, if you go back through my career, you know, I've been at board level. Mm. I mean, obviously in the family business, it's not, you can't really, I mean, I was at board level before, you know, when I left, but in a small business. Yeah. But in the sports trade, I was at board level. And, you know, having had that responsibility and I knew what my skill sets were and what, or how, what my core competencies were. And I definitely think I had, you know, what it took. But, but again, it was just at a time where businesses just didn't know what to do with it and yeah. so they weren't confident enough at that moment in time either in me or just what to do generally with people who were owning e-commerce and digital in the business mm. to put them on the board and as i look around consumer businesses today still the majority of businesses don't have it on the board which is a bit surprising given yeah given that these are the growth channels and are obviously driving a lot of the profit profitability now well, yeah for, particularly when you look at a lot of the big retail mns is a good example isn't it it's just massively cutting the number of stores and ramping up the percentage of yep. online sales, isn't it? So yep. do you think it will change eventually that it will become, these roles will become much more sort of board level roles or uh, is it I, still a bit seen a bit different to the, I think, the high street? Uh, well, I think what's going to happen is more and more, re- more and more retailers and other consumer sector businesses, travel companies and so on will become much more integrated. Mm. So rather than having an e-commerce team or a digital team, yeah. you will just have you know, everybody will be pointing in the direction of the customer, basically. And yeah. you people who do merchandising, people who do content, people who do marketing, people who the data scientists, you know, people will work across all of the channels. Yeah. Because if you're going to have consistency and you're going to deliver the experience that consumers are looking for, basically through all the channels and all the touch points, you need to be integrated. If you mm. have a siloed operating structure, and organisational structure, that's not really going to cut it mm. because you just end up with lots of inconsistencies. So was this the point then? That you, did you set up the company called Practicology at this point or did it go no. through a few iterations before it became that? I, I, went to, I went to work for a company. So I decided to try the other side of the fence because I thought, okay, I've, you know, I've, I've gone probably as far as I can within e-commerce within retail. So working for a brand or yeah, for a... Sh- yeah, it's not going to... I'm not going to get that board-level job that I'm after. Yeah. So I went to work for a company called Conchango, who at the time were a 42 million turnover um, sort of hybrid, similar, I suppose similar to what Practicology became, but hybrid between a consultancy and a digital agency. Uh, they used to do quite a lot of technologies, uh, system integration as well. Mm. And I was going there to be the sort of, sort of number one, number two in the retail practice. 
And uh, halfway through my notice period at Ted Baker, I got a phone call to tell me that they'd sold the business right. to EMC in the US, the yeah. big data storage company. Yeah. And I just instinctively thought that's probably not going to end very well for me. <laughs> but my only option was to go to Ted Baker and say, can we rescind my notice? And I thought, well, that's not a good conversation. Yeah. You know, having sort of said I was leaving. So I took the job and I got made redundant after six months. Right. But when I came out of that, and I was thinking about what I was going to do. And I was thinking about going back to retail. And I had to be very strong uh, in my mind because I was reminding myself about why I left retail in the first place. Mm. And I, I thought, well, I don't think things have changed that much. So I should continue down this path. Um, and I was thinking about the experience that I'd had in Conchango and having worked with other management consultancies previously. And they tend to ha they do tend to have a model where they bring in the biggest brains from the best universities, mm. again, rather than that real-world experience. Yeah. So my instinct told me there must be a gap in the market for a business that's made up of practitioners, people that have got that real-world experience, particularly yeah. because digital and e-commerce is moving so quickly. How can someone that's been to university but hasn't got any real-world experience really know what's going on? Mm. And, and not only that, but... How do you ensure, how do you empathize with your clients? How do you come up with solutions that essentially can be implemented? Because the trouble with a lot of traditional management consultancy is you get great reports. We call them third factor documents. Right. They look really impressive. Great, great PowerPoint presentations. You turn the page in these 300 page documents. They're amazing. You get to the end of it and you think, I don't know what to do about this. How why, do you why third factor then? What is, what's... You said third factor. Third factor. Sorry. Right. Third factor. Ah. Third. T-H-U-D. Oh, third. Sorry. It's my right. accident. Yeah, my sorry. accident. I thought I was thinking third. Okay. Third factor. <laughs> it's the third factor. Thank you. I understand So that. when the document lands on the desk or the table, <laughs> it makes a noise. Got you. Because right. it's like 300 pages. It's a weighty tome. That, Correct. Uh, that shows you've done a lot of work. Correct. Got the it. The problem is you can't implement it. Right. So I thought, well, there must be another way. Yeah. And, you know, we created a business that was packed full of people that had been there and done it. So there's solutions that we recommended were solutions that either we had implemented or we knew would work yeah. because we know the challenges that retailers and other businesses were facing when it would come to implementing our recommendations. And I think generally we were just better at engaging with different stakeholders in the business and understanding the requirement to make sure they all came on the journey, you know, because mm. if you don't do that, your recommendations will never be implemented successfully. So were you working then primarily with big companies that were looking to improve their e-commerce offering or was it companies that were starting out looking to create one from scratch? Good question. In the in the very early stages of practicology, it was more it was more the latter. It was more smaller businesses because you know when you don't excuse me when you don't have a track record, yeah. it takes a bit of time to build that up. Um, the advantage I had was that I was already quite well known in the industry, at least within digital and e-commerce. Yeah. So when I used to knock on the door of <clears> some of my early clients, like Sir Thomas Pink or Ben Sherman, and I told them where I had worked in my career. They more or less said, right, when can you start? Right. So I found winning opportunities very early on quite easy. And I think the other thing that I was quite good at, which a lot of people struggle with when they, a lot of people think I'd like to go out and be an independent consultant. Mm. And the thing that the, the barrier that they tend to come up against is they find it easy to win the business. They do the first piece of work. Yeah. They then come up for air and they go, oh, I've got no more, I've got no more work <laughs> yeah. because they haven't built the pipeline of new opportunities at the same time. Yeah. And I was always quite good at that. And the reason why I was always quite good at that and doing the work is because I'd been on both sides of the fence. Yeah. So I had the practical practitioner experience as well as the service 
provision experience. And so that stood me in good stead. And was that then setting up ways that, you know, rev con um, consistent revenue streams, as in you, they would pay you a fee every month or, or every few months, whatever, or was it more, you were already thinking, of, while you were doing that first job, you were thinking about what you could offer them next? Yeah, I mean, at one, at one point, I was actually, I think I was doing about three interim roles on my own consecutively, <laughs> right? I mean, obviously, I couldn't be in each business every day a week, every every day of the week, but I was kind of selling myself out for a day a week. So yeah. I was doing a day a week in... Ben Sherman, Thomas Pink, uh, another uh, a business in the financial services sector. Right. And then I was selling the rest of my time to do consulting. Right. Um, but that's not a sustainable nor a scalable model, no. as I discovered. <laughs> but again, bringing, bringing partners on board meant yeah. that we could start to, you know, think a little, bit, a, little, a little bit more holistically. So the early stages, it was me doing that. And then with my two partners on board with Mark and Jeremy, we were, we were able to really start thinking about longer term consulting engagements and really building out the lines of business. Mm. So it kind of went from me being quite hands on, providing really my knowledge and IP to help them do better commercially through e-commerce and other digital channels mm. um, to actually helping start to have a broader, more significant impact at a strategic level. And was it the, the sort of growing internationally, did that happen sort of organically or was that something that you had to really sort of... Great question. ...jump into, you know? I, I would love to say, people have asked me many times, you know, why did you go, why, how did you end up in Australia? Yeah. And believe it or not, I'm about to do my 20th trip next week. Right. In nine years. Right. Okay. Right? Total madness. <laughs> <clears throat> anyway, um, I was presenting at e-commerce expo in London and the... The, essentially, I did, a, I did a presentation, I did a keynote, hmm. and this guy came up and tapped me in the shoulder at the end and said, Hi, Mike, you go down really well, Dan Ander. <laughs> in my tech, you think after all these trips to Australia, I'd yeah. be able to do a better job of that. But anyway, <laughs> and he said, I run the biggest online retail event in Australia, think you're awesome. Um, all the British brands that you've headed up online, you'd go down a storm in Australia. Here's my card, give me a call. So I gave him a call two weeks later. He says, I'm on holiday, give me a fortnight. Yeah. So I gave him a call. And I said to him, right, so you want me to come down and present an online retailer? I said, um, what, sort of, what sort of fees do you pay? Yeah. He went, <coughs> <coughs> fees? <laughs> he said, I'll fly you down in an economy and I'll put you up in a nice hotel. Right. I sort of thought to myself, mm, never been to Australia, but I know it's a pretty long way. Yeah. And I don't, sorry, I don't fancy the idea of flying there and back in economy. So I said, well, I'm looking really to fly business class because it's a long way and I need to sleep for some of that. Yeah. Um, so I said to him, look, if you don't pay fees, do, do you do workshops? He said, yep. I said, well, I'll tell you what, I'll do a full day web optimization and marketing masterclass. I said, you've got, the, you've got the venue, you've got the marketing capability, you sell it and I'll deliver the content. Yeah. And I promise you, I'll do a great job. He said, great, sounds perfect to most split the revenue. So I said to him, how much would you sell those tickets for? He said, oh, about $600. <laughs> I said, okay. I said, how many, I said, how many people do you think you get? He said, about 50. So I'm doing the maths and I'm thinking, okay, my split of that gets good. me the flight and makes me a bit on top. Yeah. I thought, great, let's do it. I said, I reckon we can get 100. And he just laughed. And we ended up with 250. Right. And then we did it the next year and we ended up with 300. Right. The problem was, by the, by the end of the third year, I walked out... <laughs> to 300 odd people realizing that at least 200 of them had been to see me for the previous two years <laughs> and i kind of run out of new stuff yeah i was like what am i going to tell these people today that they haven't heard before but i loved that i mean i used to do live website reviews and they used to queue up literally i mean i would spend 
two or three hours of this day literally reviewing people's websites yep. live. They'd queue up behind a microphone and they'd say www. you know yeah. .au, whatever the site was. And I would just walk through it and I, I would walk through it as a customer does. Yeah. And I would highlight all the barriers and the blockers and the stuff yeah. that stop people from buying. The things that they could improve. Correct. Like, quite so tactical. Yeah. So you know, really tactical stuff. Stuff they could take back to their business and start to implement. Mm. And I think that's the biggest gap, you know, really with a lot of events today that you go, you know, people invest hard-earned dollars and their time in going to conferences. Mm. And, you know, you hear some interesting people speak, but then you go back and you think, I can't do anything with any of this. Yeah, and I guess you could only have done that with all that experience Correct. behind you. There's no way no, if without only, that experience. No, if I had only been a supplier, I, would not, I wouldn't have that type of insight. Yeah. I might have, of course, I'd have some idea of what my customers had done and how successful it had been, but it's never going to come across the same way. It's never mm -hmm. going to have the same authenticity and transparency and, and again, founded in my experience. And I, I suppose that was probably the early sort of foundation for, or I guess the early thinking that was to eventually lead to me writing a book yeah. about customer experience because it's just something I've always had a passion about and I've, all, and I've clearly got some innate capability to mm. understand. It's not something necessarily that I've studied. It's just something I get. Yeah. And, I, and I think I get it because I'm just a customer, right? And yeah. when I have a bad experience, I think about what, you know, why did that happen and what could you do to improve that and, mm. and ensure that it doesn't happen again. Yeah. And I guess that, yeah, so we'll talk about the book in a sec. I'll ask you about that in a sec. But So that was Australia. Yeah. How did the other sort of international... Well, well just, sorry, I, to, to bottom out that conversation, oh, you yeah. know, I, I, so what was happening was, because when I was going down there and I was presenting to all these people, you know, I picked up some business. Yeah. So I picked up some business and I would basically, what I, what I would do is I would go back home, fly back to Australia, do some work, come back to the UK... Mark and Jeremy did a couple of trips or a few trips as well. Yeah. And I suppose by the end of a couple of years, I thought, well, this isn't really sustainable. You know, we need to do something down here. And so we agreed that we would try and set up an office. And we came across a guy called Chris, Chris Vincent, who subsequently is now the global CEO of Practicology. Um, I brought him over from Australia a couple of years ago. He was a potential client that I was courting at that time. Right. And one day he phoned me up and said, when are you, when are you next coming to Australia? And I said, why? He said, well, I don't know if this job's going to work out for me that I'm in at the moment and I'd quite like to have a chat with you about maybe working for you guys and I said oh that's interesting good timing mm -hmm. so he came on board and then he did a fantastic job of building the business down there with support from myself and my colleagues in the UK um, but he built a team of 25 26 people right uh, I brought him over to the UK two years late uh, sorry two years ago to to take over the day-to-day -day running of practicology um, which allowed me to be a slightly more strategic role within yep. the business. Yeah. Um, we went from Australia to Hong Kong, and that was really Chris's. <clears throat> sorry, uh, Chris's insight. You know, I hadn't really spent any time in Asia at all, and he convinced me that we needed to do something in China, but that we probably we talked about it. And we said, well, we probably need a beachhead first rather yeah. than going straight into China. Yeah. So we looked at Singapore, we looked at Hong Kong, we did a few trips, and then we landed on Hong Kong, and we we started. What, what Practicology has done <clears throat> quite successfully is I suppose what a lot of agencies do is we started to build relationships with brands like Moet Hennessy or Pandora in Australia and then started to leverage those relationships to then do work with those brands in other territories and that really helped the expansion of the business into Asia. Yeah. Um, so we opened up in Hong Kong, then we did a joint venture in um, 
in China. And Practicology now is an official Tmall partner, uh, so helping brands that want to be on the biggest marketplace in China. Um, they also do direct-to-consumer work as well. Uh, and then we went from there to Dubai. And Dubai was the last office that we opened. We had, so we have offices in London, Dubai, Guangzhou in China, Sydney and Melbourne in Australia. Um, my goal had always been to build, scale, and monetize the business. And I'd always been very open about that with mm. anyone I met over the years. To and eventually sell it, you mean? To eventually sell it, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. And <clears throat> never hid the fact. Never hid the fact from colleagues that came into the business. Never hid the fact from the market, you know. And I suppose, in my mind, the way I work as a networker and a marketer, again, you know, you don't necessarily have to have a fully-fledged marketing campaign to sell the business. Mm. I sowed the seed over many years. Yeah. And I marked a lot of people's cards over that time. <laughs> and when we actually ended up selling the business, we had two horses in the race, and both of them had been referral-driven to us. Uh, we didn't run a process. We didn't hire an M&A advisor. Mm. We had two, separate, two different businesses, very different. Um, a management consultancy that probably be, wouldn't be appropriate for me to mention who they no. are, but you know, really great business, nice culture, good people, really liked them. And then slight, slightly left of centre along came this business called iServe, who have since rebranded to Pattern. Mm. And they, they're all about marketplaces and they, they are essentially a, a marketplace reseller. They act to drive brand integrity for brands. So take a client like Samsonite, who would historically have had hundreds of smaller resellers unauthorized, yep. who knows where they get the stock, selling their brand on Amazon, yep. discounting it, not using the right content or the right marketing. Yep. So really having some significant issues from their perspective in terms of brand integrity. Mm. And Pattern are able to work with a legal firm to close a lot of these people down. And they become the supplier, of, they become the wholesaler of choice and they buy the stock essentially from uh, from the brand and they yeah. run it on behalf of the brand and they do right. everything. And so it's a really great model. And so what was attractive about that was all their businesses in Amazon, all their business was in the US. They wanted to internationalize. Their clients want to internationalize. And Practicology had a presence in all the markets they wanted to get into. Right. And Practicology's services were really more on the direct-to-consumer side. So more about, for example, supporting a Samsonite to sell directly to consumers, yeah. to market to consumers to put the right organizational capabilities and structure in place yeah. to choose the right markets to go into, you know? So a combination of strategy advisory type services and then more some, some implementation with our experience of being on the practitioner side. Mm. So it was very synergistic. And um, in terms of the timing of that sale then, was that something that you had decided right now is the time I want to sell or, or we want to sell or was it more they came in and that felt like the right kind of offer? Uh, it, was a, it was a bit of both. My, 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 my intuition, my instinct was it probably was the right time for me personally. Why was that? I suppose I, I kind of felt that I'd taken the business as far as I could. And, mm. you know, have, without investment, it would have been, in my mind, very hard to scale the business further. Mm. I think we did a brilliant job. And you, you were chief executive at this point, is that right? I, I, when we sold, I was the chairman. Chairman, right, yeah, yeah. But I was still very much in the driving seat. And, yeah. you know, Chris was running the business operationally, but strategically, I was still making, you know, yeah. the key decisions along with Chris and along with the rest of the board in our business. Yeah. Um, but fundamentally... 
I think we would have had to have taken investment to grow the business further. And I did have some of those conversations just before we started getting more serious about selling. And we could have we could have actually taken investment. That might have been an opportunity to take a little bit of cash off the table mm. and invest for growth. But knowing, starting to understand that a bit more, I thought, well, whoever invests in us is going to then want to own the business for at least three years to see the scaling of the business yep. to a point where it was ready to be sold again. Yeah. And then I thought even at that point, I'm then going to be locked in for another three or four years and I'm about to turn 53. Mm. So, you know, in my mind, I would have been nearly 60 mm. by the time I would have actually been able to exit. And I just thought, I, I, I felt, I feel that I've got something else in me, another opportunity to build something. Mm. And I just thought if I, if I go down that path, I'm going to lose that opportunity. And that was really the driver for deciding to go down the path of selling rather than inv getting investment and trying to scale further. Just up to that point, had it been satisfying <laughs> then to have, to have been on that, that board level you know, having built that and been at that board level and making those strategic decisions in a oh, way that you totally. felt like you were denied. Totally. Almost, yeah. Oh, no, I mean, I loved it. I absolutely loved it. But I, I also had the good fortune. I mean, I've been on a variety of um, retailers' boards as a non-executive director, mm. as a board advisor. Uh, recently stepped down from a great business called White Stuff, multi-channel fashion retailer. Yeah, yeah. You know, lovely business. Been on that board for four and a half years. Just we all, we, we all felt it was just the, the right time to move on. But, you know, I gained a lot of experience by being involved in other businesses and being able to bring my expertise as well as me mm. learning to become a better leader of practicology by being on boards of other businesses. Mm. So, yeah, it's been a great journey for me. Um, but, you know, in a way, in a crazy way, I kind of feel like I'm just at the beginning again. Right. But what, do you, what do you think that opportunity might be then? Do you know yet what it is or are you still trying to work, figure no, it out? No, I'm very, I'm very clear in the path that I'm going and, and okay. what, I'm trying, what I'm actually trying to do and only time will tell. So maybe we'll have to do a revisit yeah. of this and it's somewhere down the line to see whether or not I was That'd successful. But um, so you've got Martin Lewis who owns the kind of, you know, yep. The money, you know, the money-saving expert, the, the financial services expertise space. Yeah, I want, I want to have some ownership of the customer service space. Okay, because that's really what I'm all about. I think I understand consumer behaviour. I understand it whether you're buying a car, whether you're buying a house, whether you're buying a suit, a dress, whether you're eating in a restaurant, whether you're going on a plane or you're going on a holiday or you're going into a bank. Yeah. I really just have this innate understanding of all of that and, and I want to do something in that space. So what the plans at the moment are, at some point this year, we will have a website called customerserviceadvice.com. Consumers will be able to come onto that website. They'll be able to talk about the experiences they've had, hopefully good and bad, mm. not just the bad. Um, but for the, for the more negative experiences, you know, we will try to find a way of finding some resolution for the consumer. Mm. We're not quite sure. Still thinking through what that, how that's going to manifest itself. Yep. I can then leverage that data to have a conversation with the boards of those businesses about what it means to be a customer-centric business. Yep. And maybe spend a day or two of them helping to put a bit of a plan or roadmap behind that. Mm. If they then want to go on that journey, I can help my friends at Practicology because yeah. I'm a shareholder of the business of the group okay. now. Okay. So I can pay, pay pay my way there, and I can maybe introduce Practicology as someone that can take them on that journey. Um, obviously, there it's down to them who who they choose to work with. But I'll sure. I'll do my best to create that relationship. Um, I am planning to you know try to build my profile a bit because although I'm quite well known within the retail space, it's more of a trade profile rather than a sort of public media yeah. persona. Yeah. And I want to go down that path now because I think that that will become 
the conduit for being successful in what I'm trying to do with customer service advice yep. and <clears throat> the other assets that I'm tra- that I'm planning to create. So I've got a book yeah. called 100 Yeah, pack. so is that all part of the uh, the plan, is the writing of the book? Well, no, I, the book is out. Yeah, no, sorry, it's already out, but is that part of the, the, the strategy of building up this Yeah, so I mean, profile? you know, I've written a book about... The, the motivation was lots of motivation for writing a book, partly because I didn't go to university, right? Yeah. So I had that chip in my shoulder for a long time. So in a way, in my mind, by writing a book, I was able to kind of scratch that itch yeah. um, and prove that I actually did have a bit of an academic head on me after all, yeah. although maybe not. Was it was it daunting ago. in that respect to, uh, no, to sit down and do it? Or? No, I really loved it. I I, I mean, I, I was I was fortunate to have Mark, Malcolm McDonald, who's an emeritus professor of marketing, very well-known guy, 80 odd years of age, inspirational man who has written over 50 books and he has sort of written the subtext, I guess, at the end of each chapter. Hmm. So I provide the practitioner's view, he provides the academic perspective. Saying that, he's very practical as well and he also has a lot of client-side experience. So I think it's a really compelling book. But but the reason, you know, what what I wanted to do, I really wrote it because I wanted to help Hmm. customer and consumer-facing businesses because we've been talking for 20 years about putting the customer at the heart of all we do, being customer first. And honestly, I don't see anyone really delivering that. And I don't see anyone delivering it because I genuinely don't believe that most businesses know what it entails, mm. nor how to execute that. And I thought, well, I'm going to have a go at writing a book that explains it. Yeah. And don't get me wrong, I did not have all the answers. So, no. you know, I had to go and do a fair bit of research. I had to, I interviewed a lot of interesting people, but I felt that I had enough to at least write the core of the book. Yeah. And I also knew that it would be an opportunity for me to upgrade my knowledge, not only in the areas that I thought I knew about, but also to learn new things. So I've got a chapter in there about social responsibility. Mm-hmm. How can you be a consumer or a customer facing business that talks about putting the customer at the heart of all you do in this day and age and not be a socially responsible business with a true sense of purpose that permeates everything you do? Mm-hmm. And in reality, at the moment, most businesses treat it as corporate social responsibility. Mm. It's no more than a tick box exercise. They do the minimum because they see it as a cost and not a benefit. Mm. And I'm, <clears throat> you know, I'm on my way into town today on the met on the on the tube, and I'm reading the metro, and there's an article in there about school kids that are going on strike, right, to save to to do to, 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 in order to sort of drive the whole you know climate and environmental message. And I, I just thought that's fantastic and it's yeah. such a great example of how important it is. So if you're a consumer-facing business and you don't do something about this, you, not only your customers of today will, be con- will, will, will vote with their feet or their mouse for that matter and <laughs> go to another website or another store, but your consumer of tomorrow mm. is, going to be all con- is going to be all consumed by social responsibility. And if you yeah. don't take it seriously, you won't have their business. So I think it was a great experience in, in, in that sense. And um, I've been very fortunate, I suppose, in the, in the context that it seems to have been fairly well received. Yeah. It's sold quite a lot of copies and it's been shortlisted for the Business Book of the Year. So 26th of March, I'll find out whether we win. And if we don't, I will forever have been a nominee for the Business Book of the Year <laughs> yeah, Award. Exactly. You can always put that on, exactly. the, on the profile. And that will be on all of my marketing collateral. Yeah, and how satisfying was it to see those first copies? Because I imagine that must be very satisfying to see the actual physical copies of it's the very book. Hum- it's very humbling, actually. You know, it really is. It's very humbling to go through the process and, and you know, all of a sudden to see something there, you know, tangible in your hand. Mm. It's 
quite amazing. Um, like I say, I'm, it's not for me. It's not about ego, but it, but it, 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 yeah, it definitely plugged a few gaps in, I suppose, in my background, and mm. I felt. I suppose one one of the other reasons why I wrote the book, being completely candid, was as as an expert, as a thought leader in the industry, my biggest fear is. Are you still a thought leader? Yeah. How do you prove your, you know, and, and how do you, as I stopped delivering work at Practicology and I moved into much more of a strategic role, I was also, it was, this is only in my mind, right? But I was just worried about people thinking that, you know, I'm just a mouthpiece and I'm not actually yeah. somebody not, that has... You're not the sharp end anymore. Yeah, I don't yeah. have the executional capability anymore. So that was the best way for me to prove, I guess, by writing about all the things that I knew about and also upgrading my knowledge at the same time in mm. those other areas. So it was a tr- it was a very very empowering experience. Mm. I love it, and I, I talked to a lot of people who have written books and say they hated it. They hated right. the process. I absolutely loved it, and they want me to write another. And I'm sure at some <laughs> point in time I will. Good stuff, and congratulations on being shortlisted. Obviously, Thank uh, you. yeah. Good luck for the uh, the awards. We'll see. We'll see. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'd like to finish by asking you three questions. Oh dear. That I ask everybody. Okay. They're not too scary, but they. <laughs> They're just nice ways to finish, I think. So the the, the first one is, do you have like a, a routine, like a daily routine that you always go through before you're yeah. ready, for, ready for action, if you like? I am very OCD, so right. I'm, a, I'm a man of habit and <laughs> I'm very into my fitness. Right. Uh, like I said, I'm about to turn 53, but I can proudly say I can still hold my own in the front row of spin classes at Cycle <laughs> Studio, P-S-Y-C-L-E. So I go there three or four times a week right. and I am on the front row and I'm pretty good at keeping up with the instructor Right, um, and I love it it's a great exercise and it just makes me feel the endorphins that you get from doing that Yeah, it just makes, sets you up for the rest of the day and do you so do that in the first thing in the morning? I don't always I, <clears throat> excuse me I sometimes do it first thing in the morning half six, seven o'clock sometimes I do the lunchtime class but either way it just makes me feel brilliant you know mm. um, so I really enjoy that and I feel you know, given that I'm getting a bit older, mm-hmm. I think it's really important to look after yourself as much as you can. Mm. Uh, I'm not so obsessed that I, you know, I, I like, you know, I like a drink. I will have a glass of wine or two most evenings. Um, I like my food. So for me, it's about balance. Yeah. Um, but I've got a really good core fitness, which I get from doing that. I also do, you know, a visit to the gym at the weekend with some weights and some running. So that's very important to me. And if I mm. don't, on the days where I don't exercise, I definitely, well, I always do some exercise even at home, even if I just do sit-ups or some squat jumps or something to get me going. Mm. When, whenever I don't exercise, I definitely feel a bit jaded mm. during the day and my mind's not as sharp. Yeah. I don't feel as if I'm on it as much as I would normally be. So that's my, that's my main focus. Mm. I think one of the things that I want to do more of now, and I don't know whether this will come up in another question, but yeah. I think there's... Again, always a danger that as a thought leader, you you can you can sometimes slip into thinking you know n- not that I really feel this way, but you think you're on top of everything. And so I think for me now, the one thing I want to do more of, and I have done it obviously over the years, is actually read more yeah. of other people and read more business books and actually just broaden my continue to broaden my own knowledge because you know whenever I go and listen to somebody else presenting or I do read somebody else's book I always get a lot of great ideas and inspiration from it and I think that's something I'd like to make sure that I do more of mm. um, as I'm moving forward. Is there anything else that's part of the uh, the routine then apart from the, the fitness? 
Crikey, on a day, on a day to day basis, not really. I mean, I'm pretty good at I'm pretty good at how I segment my time yeah. and how I use my time. I am a multitasker, uh, contrary to the popular belief that men can only do one thing at one time. <laughs> I reckon I can do one and a half. So there you go. Um, so you know, <clears throat> because the nature of what I do, and even when you know, running practicology and then chairing it, you know, I was doing a lot, and I was on the boards of other businesses. So you're always having to juggle hmm. reading somebody else's board papers, reading your own board papers. I always wanted to spend a lot of time with all the colleagues in the business. So even when I wasn't running it day to day and Chris took that over, I still wanted to make sure I had that FaceTime with people so I could find out how they were getting on, how they were feeling about things. Yeah. So being being close to people is important. But, you know, again, there's only there's only two of us now yeah. in this little startup. Tiffany, who's my head of operations, who was my assistant at Practicology and I. So we'll, we'll, we'll kind of go from there and see how things go. <laughs> All right, second question. Yeah. Uh, when you look back over everything, you know, you've had all sorts of uh, different twists and turns. What's the thing that you're sort of most proud of when you look back and you think, yeah, that was the, that's what I'm most proud of, if, yeah. if it's possible to? Yeah, no, sure. <clears throat> I, I think it has to be selling practicology. It has to be because for me, that was, you know, because what that does for me, it was a means to an end. Mm. It's not the selling of practicology in itself. I, I was all I was striving for financial security for myself and my family, and that was that was the vehicle. That was the thing that helped me get there. And the fact that you know I learned from all the mistakes that I made previously with my first business venture, and just generally all my mistakes and successes throughout my career that enabled me, I think, to fundamentally steer that business mm. towards that successful outcome has to be the moment I'm proudest of by by. A country mile. I mean, writing a book's fantastic. Mm. Um, you know, I've done lots of things. I've worked for some amazing brands, but I think when you, not many people get to build and sell a business. Yeah. Lots of people try, yeah. and not a lot of people get there. And I'm very proud of that. And, you know, and I want to do it again. <laughs> so I want to prove to myself, not to anybody else, yeah. that that wasn't a fluke, that I can actually go and do something again and be successful. But, you know, having the financial security to, you know, know that I can, you know, choose my own path yeah. and not be forced down a path as well. The freedom that that brings you, yeah. you know, the, the sort of self-satisfaction, I guess, of being in a place where you can now define exactly what you do. I don't have to do anything. I can, I can absolutely do what I want to do. Mm. And that's the first time really in my life where I've been able to, to sort of feel that way. Mm. That's obviously quite rewarding and, and quite empowering as well. Yeah. Final question then, just in terms of, this could be anything, we talked a bit about music earlier, but in terms of, this could be music that you're listening to now, or TV that you're watching now, or a book that you're reading right now, what are you sort of consuming right now that you're really enjoying, that is, you know, getting you excited? Crikey, <laughs> combination of things. Um, well, I mean, like I say, I'm, I'm starting to go through, actually, I'm literally right now just thinking, looking at what do I read next, so I'm looking for my next business book. Um, I did read a book recently, but I'm not suggesting everybody goes out, <laughs> goes out and buys this, but I, I read a book by a guy called Harry Dent, who's an American economist. He's a bit of a half-class empty guy, um, right. <laughs> and but he has predicted a lot of the bubbles and the boom and bust cycles over the years, the recessions, mm. and he's predicting a fairly significant depression. And so, but but I think I think what that's done, you know, I think we all I think we all feel anyone that's in business probably thinks we're heading for something, right? Given everything that's going on in the world right now with politics mm. and Brexit and America and Trump and yada yada yada, yeah, uh, and China, you know, the down the slowdown over there. So no mm. one really knows exactly when it's going to hit. But I think that what that has 
done has probably made me a lot better prepared for that in terms of what I do now and what I would do when that moment happens. And mm. I think, I suppose, you know, it's probably a worthwhile book for people to read. Mm. Um, but it, it is, I just warn you, if you do read it, it, <laughs> it is a bit negative. Yeah. Uh, so you, you might decide to give up <laughs> at the end of it. I wouldn't suggest you do that. Um, so, I, but I, I, I've, as I say, I've take, I have taken inspiration from that because I think it's given me insight into things that I didn't understand well enough, mm. you know, around economics and, you know, what might be coming. Um, so that's been empowering. Um, so I'm looking for the next book. Um, right. I watch a lot. I do. I do like. I watch a lot of Netflix. Yeah. Um, uh, what was the last thing? You, what's the thing you've been watching recently? Uh, crikey! I knew you were going to ask me that. <laughs> I always forget the name of things, which is really not great. I mean, some. I mean, I've obviously watched Game of Thrones. Well, I say obviously, not everyone's watched Game of Thrones. Yeah. I've enjoyed Game of Thrones. I'm not a huge science fiction fan, um, but I have really enjoyed it, and I'm looking forward to the the last series coming out in a month or two. Yeah. Um, I loved House of Cards. Yeah. I love political dramas. I yeah, watched me that. Too. Really enjoyed it, and I suppose the the most disappointing thing was when Kevin Spacey, for the right reasons, obviously had to leave. Yeah. Uh, or for the wrong reasons, but you know, had to leave, and and that was a shame. But I did watch the last series of that, and. <laughs> quite interesting yeah um, so yeah I like I like a drama I mean I'm, I'm probably more into something documentary or drama driven something a bit more thriller yeah. orientated as opposed to comedy you know <laughs> um, so I enjoy all that like my football so oh, when yeah. I can I get to when I can do I you go still and, go and see Celtic then I, I do occasionally. Um, I have the good fortune of um, I'm, I'm, I'm what's called a global sell. So there's a kind of semi-formal network of business people who are fans of the club. There's about right. 100 people, I think, who provide some pro bono support to the club. Um, and in return, well, there isn't really a payback per se, but you always get the opportunity to get a ticket for a game if oh, you want it. Although you, you still have to pay for it. Yeah. Um, but that's been really great. And, you know, I've mentored a couple of people in the commercial side of the business and everything, and I've enjoyed I've enjoyed that experience. But so I still go to watch games occasionally. But I also support Barnet because when I moved to London, you know, I wanted to have someone that I could go and watch locally. Yeah. Uh, and you can't really have two big clubs. No. So Barnet and Barnet are certainly not a big club. <laughs> uh, sadly, wallowing in the nether regions of the National League at the moment, not doing that well. Um, <laughs> but they'll come back. And funnily enough. I didn't realise this at the time. Both clubs were founded in 1888. Right. So there's a bit of of commonality there. So I occasionally go and watch them. Um, And outside of that, for me... Yeah, if I can get to a gig, if I can go to see some live music, lights, I love the cinema. Yeah. Um, went um, to see. And what about? Sorry, go on. You're going to say went no, to see. Please, on you, go. Well, you were going to say you went to see the Green Book. Oh yeah. Last week, which I really enjoyed. I thought yeah, it was I've a fantastic that, yeah. film, and I was a bit a bit surprised that they didn't pick up um, the. I'm going to do a very bad job of uh, <laughs> trying to pronounce his first name, Maharshara Ali, yeah. I think. Maharshara Ali, I think. Yeah, it, yeah. so he, he won Best Supporting Actor, I think, in the BAFTAs. Yeah. Fantastic, amazing performance. But um, I, I, thought they, I thought they might have picked up more. Um, Viggo Mortensen was also fantastic. Yeah. Uh, and I thought the film generally might have maybe had more, more awards, but we'll see what happens in the Oscars. Yeah. So, yeah, I do enjoy a good trip to the movies. And I was just going to ask you finally, the music... We mentioned some of your favourite yes. bands. Do you still are you still listening to them mainly, or are you listening to newer stuff now? Good question. Uh, I probably do. Well, a bit, bit, bit of both. I mean, I like I, I like quite a lot of indie music. So you know, 
Stereophonics, Oasis. Yeah. I still listen to uh, Mumford and Sons. I really enjoy. Yeah. So I get to see them live whenever I can. Really enjoy their live performances. Um, but I've also got. I've got a really eclectic mix. I've got disco on there. Yeah. I've got a bit of new romantic on. You know, on my phone. <laughs> you name it. Uh, a lot of it probably is harking back to a bygone era. You know. Yeah. So, it's hard not to do that sometimes, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. With music, especially. That's very inspirational, you know, when you... Because yeah. you remember... You, it does take you back to the to times that you remember, normally remember fondly. Yeah. You normally associate music, I think, with good times. So, yeah. yeah. Or sometimes not. <laughs> if you've had a breakup or something, you know. Yeah, true. But uh, for true. me, most of my music's quite upbeat and just generally gets my... I suppose you were talking earlier about preparing for the day. I do listen to music in the morning. Right. And although I read on the way in, whether it's a book or the Metro or whatever, you know, I do find that music gets my head in the right place. And I, I'm, as you can tell, I'm quite upbeat. And it, it just it just gives me, the, I suppose, the right vibe for the day, you know, and yeah. it puts me in a good place. Makes your glass half full. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> Martin talking of which, <laughs> glass half full is nearly that time yeah, already. It is, isn't it? <laughs> Martin, it's been a pleasure. Thank Thanks, you. Thanks, I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this latest episode of Creative Forces. Hope you enjoyed it. I really enjoyed talking to Martin. He was good fun. And he had some great anecdotes, um, you know, and some about particularly about his younger years. And also, you know, really fascinating to hear about how he's, um, you know, grown his career and the, the sort of the twists and turns that that's taken along the way. Really interesting. And so my thanks to him for, for talking to me. Uh, don't forget, if you want to support the podcast, you can do... Uh, patreon.com forward slash creative forces pod and also get in touch if you can love to hear from you if you enjoy the podcast or you want to tell me anything uh, at creative forces p on twitter also uh, there's a facebook page if you want to get in touch there and also creative forces pod at gmail.com send me an email anytime Uh, i'd love to hear from you that's creative forces pod at gmail.com hope to hear from you soon cheers